Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Almost Famous, the 2000 film written and directed by Cameron Crowe. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hey, brother! <laughs> and Alex Galleros. Hi. Uh, okay, so before we dive into Almost Famous, quick updates on what's going on over on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. We just recently dropped two patron exclusives because there's a new patron exclusive every month. And so for March, we did Spotlight, which was really fun to talk about. I love that movie. It was so good. Uh, and for April, April Fools, we talked about Austin Powers, the International Man of Mystery. Uh, also a very good movie. <laughs> two best picture winners. Uh, yes, yes, for sure. Uh, and both those conversations were super fun. They're over on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. So head over, check them out. Uh, it's good times. Uh, okay, so now talking about Almost Famous. So this is one of those movies that I think maybe isn't for me and I have lots of thoughts about it and I some of them are personal and some of them are more like objective screenwriting stuff. I'd watched this a long time ago, like 10, 15 years ago, because I'd heard, you know, it's almost famous. It's this modern classic. Uh, and I realized having watched it again that I did not finish it the first time because the last like 30 minutes of this movie was all new to me. So there was just something about it that really wasn't working for me. Uh, this time it worked much better. I found myself enjoying parts of it. I think part of the problem is that I relate too hard to this protagonist. And I think I spent... I wondered. Yeah. yeah. I spent a lot of adolescence as like the person adjacent to the cool people, really wanting to be cool, and then just kind of being used for being like a good listener and like making other people feel better. And like there was a brief period that I'd forgotten where like a friend of mine managed a band. So like I did hang out like backstage with like roadies at like... It brought back weird parts of, like, my past that I'd forgotten uh, and since, like, moved on from and, like, so. Or thought you had. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think watching it this time, I was less bothered by it, but also right. just, like, I've learned all these lessons. Like, I don't care about these. I'm not invested in a lot of this stuff. But did find myself really enjoying more of the kind of band drama and the kind of grappling with, like, the mediocrity meeting fame, like all of that band stuff I found really interesting this time, the Billy Crudup character. Uh, and then of course, it, you know, there's the classic like tiny dancer scene, which is just, and then that song is yeah. stuck in your head for days and days and it's <laughs> totally great. Uh, so yeah, so it was really interesting revisiting this and I'm very curious to hear, uh, yeah, your guys' thoughts on just personal relationship, but also script stuff. I know, I didn't know this before, but I know that there are different cuts of it, and I'm very curious about that, because it feels like, especially the second half of the second act, I feel some really abrupt, like, time compression happening, where it feels like it's jumping ahead and the relationships are changing. So, curious to hear all of that. Um, but, Trisha, I want to hear from you, because this was on your top of the 2000s list, I believe. I mean, if it wasn't, maybe it should have been. Um, yeah, I really love this movie. One of my college roommates had the DVD, and so we watched it, like, a lot. And I don't know. There's just something about it that really speaks to me about, I don't know, companionship and friendship and in the context of 
art and performance and writing and these kind, you know, this sort of this field that everyone is in. And I was in a band briefly, um, probably around the time that I was falling in love with this movie. I don't play an instrument. I was singing backup as a favor for a friend of mine, but a lot of my friends are musicians. And so I kind of was in like this musician-y crowd and got caught up in sort of the romance of the musician like lifestyle. I don't know. I just really, really love it. I think the writing is so witty. I think the characters are all so interesting, like even all down to the, you know, each supporting character. Like you forget that Zoe Deschanel is in this movie at a certain point, mm. but then when she comes back, you're like, Oh yeah. And she's so great. Frances McDormand was nominated for an Oscar for mm. this performance. And she's only in, you know, a small part of the movie, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. He's playing Lester Banks. He's doing an amazing job. And so mm. I just feel like the supporting cast too is also incredibly fun. And each character feels fully realized and, and amazingly performed by this cast. It's a really, really well written and really, really well edited and put together movie, mm. which is something I have thoughts on actually this time around, because as I mentioned, I watched my roommate's DVD and that I'm really, really familiar with the theatrical cut of this. The untitled quote unquote cut, which is the director's cut, is the one that I watched this time around for the first time. And I was turned off by it in a lot of ways. And hmm. part of that's probably nostalgia where I was just like, well, I like the cut that I know, you know, I like the, mm. the beats that I'm familiar with and the rhythm of the way that I, I remember this movie. But I also think there's a, a, there are a lot of problems with the director's cut where there's some dialogue in there that is hard to play <laughs> even hmm. for Billy Crudup and Kate Hudson and some of the greatest actors ever. There's some dialogue that got left in the director's cut that does not see the light of day in the theatrical cuts that I think belo doesn't belong there. And yeah, some of the transitions uh, between scenes and the timing of it and the structure of it. So uh, definitely want to get into that as we go along. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Very curious. Um, all right, Alex, what about you? Yeah, I, I'm sure I saw this back when it was an awards season darling because it, it, it won best picture, right? Um, that, that year in 2000, I believe. Best, best screenplay one. Yeah. Original best screenplay, screenplay okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah it was definitely, it was, there was a lot of Oscar buzz around this movie, and I think I saw it around that time. And yeah, at that age, I didn't really appreciate a lot of a lot of the context of it, the, the time, the scene, the music, you know, any of that. Um, but I did feel that, you know, some of the feels that Michael said, like they were too painful <laughs> for you at the time, that, 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 that weird longing of like wanting to be around the cool kids and the person who's kind of mysterious and alluring, but like, are they using you? And there's a lot of like adolescent feelings that are really well captured in this movie, like painfully so that I definitely could resonate with even at that time when I was like, you know, 14 or whatever. Um, and watching it again now, I, I really admire just how the movie's put together. Like you were saying, Trisha, the, the theatrical cut is just so well edited and it's just such a fun, enjoyable ride. Like it's, it's one of those films that I felt was just purely pleasurable to be watching the entire time. And it was it was just making me remember that there was this era and 
you know, this era of film in the 90s that we kind of like harken back to occasionally on the podcast where it's like, we used to be able to do stories that are now told primarily as limited series or TV shows could like you could tell the two hour version of those stories and tell them really well. And like that could be a movie with a lot of money behind it that would play theatrically and have a big, you know, broad audience. And we just don't get this movie anymore. It, it's usually got to be in a different format or it's got to be a little more art house. Um, I just don't see a lot of almost famouses coming out. And I just really miss this kind of movie where it's very accessible, very enjoyable, but also like, you know, poignant and, and smart and deep at the same time. I will say this movie did not make a lot of money slash actually quite mm, was okay. unsuccessful at the box office. Now, Cameron Crowe was coming off of Jerry Maguire, so he, which was a very successful movie, had gotten a ton of Oscar nominations. Um, and so he was he had the juice to make almost famous and it's an expensive movie for what it is. <laughs> like right. it's like 46 million, I think, was the budget. Um I'm for, looking at it now. Budget was 60 million. It made 60 million, 47. 40, yeah, Ooh, I, knew, okay. I knew I looked those numbers up. Yeah, 60 million dollars. That is not yeah. a small budget now, and it was not a right. small budget then. Yeah. But Cameron Crowe, because Jerry Maguire was so successful, he was able to get that money to make this movie. Um, and it, it was not very successful at all. However, to your point, it was critically acclaimed and it was nominated for four Oscars. And so, yeah, there was a ton of buzz about it as being like, not necessarily like a, you know, heavy drama sort of Oscar bait film the way that we think of them today, because obviously it's a lot of fun. And I agree that it's very accessible, but it certainly wasn't like a crowd pleaser per se. Interesting. Yeah. I should have done my research on that. But yeah, it, it, feels, okay. like, it feels like a crowd it pleaser. It does, doesn't it, yeah. though? <laughs> it feels yeah. like a crowd pleaser. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And Brian, what about you? Uh, yeah, love this movie. Um, it was, I, I just checked, it was not on either Trisha or my top 10 of the 2000s, but we probably mentioned it on that episode as being like a, a strong yeah. contender <laughs> for both of us. Um, and uh, yeah, I hadn't watched it in a while, so it was really lovely to, to go back. And I, I did a kind of a comparison between the two cuts, which I'll get into later. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll surprise no one that I was in a band uh, in high school. And it will surprise no one that I often had crushes on much cooler women who were involved with much cooler men. Um, so, you know, definitely a lot of definitely a lot of hitting home in this movie. But I also just really liked the story and, you know, specifically, I mean, just some of my favorite actors in this movie with Francis McDormand and Philip Seymour Hoffman been like you know this movie might be one of the reasons Francis McDormand became one of my favorite actors because it was like oh like yeah anybody I'm not anybody but you can take a role like Fargo and and sort of make a meal out of it not everyone can just can play this character oh, and like so blow your mind with like how good the performance is right because it's not there's not as much there to work with as there is on some more character stuff I find Cameron Crowe fascinating um, just be, as a music fan you know movies like singles or even movies like Say Anything which aren't really about music but where music plays such a huge role um, and uh, so, so I, I think this is such a cool culmination of him throwing a lot of personal stuff into the movie, but still making a movie that feels, you know, if not crowd crowd pleaser, as we're talking about a movie that still feels like a, a well put together film that's not trying to be too indulgent. And maybe that's where the bootleg cut or the un untitled cut like does come into a little yeah. bit of indulgence, but the theatrical cut, especially just to me feels like really just like a really solid movie. I love the experience of someone introducing me to a movie they're passionate about. 
And that's what Mubi does every day. Mubi is a streaming service where each and every film is hand-selected. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. Right now, Mubi is streaming several groundbreaking films, including The Lives of Others, Melancholia, At Eternity's Gate, The Original Ghost in the Shell, and Ghost in the Shell 2.0. With a free 30-day trial, you can experience Mubi's library of films for yourself. And by signing up, you're also supporting Beyond the Screenplay and helping us to continue to make new episodes. So why not try Mubi for free today? Just visit Mubi.com slash Beyond the Screenplay to start your free trial and discover a world of great cinema. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Beyond the Screenplay. Thank you, Mubi, for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, so why don't we dive into the, the kind of differences between the theatrical and, and the director's cut? Because I think that'll be an interesting kind of launch board to talk about what what this movie does do well. Um so yeah, Brian, Trisha, what are some of the like main takeaway differences that you guys found watching director's cut? I noticed a lot of, I'm going to call it fat in the first half where it, the scenes themselves are longer. It's not so much that there's mm-hmm. like a lot of big deleted scenes. It's that there's more air and a little bit more dialogue in mm-hmm. the way that the scenes play out. So For example, there's, you know, when they're talking about right after we cut from young (laughs) William Miller uh, and his mother and it's he has become an adult or he's a, you know, he's a 15 year old, but he's (laughs) a senior in high school as a 15 year old. And they're kind of illustrating how much he doesn't fit in. Um, And so there's a a little scene where he walks up to the school building and everyone's kind of like waving at him, nodding at him, going like, Hey man, Hey. And he can't figure out why everyone is looking at him. Right. And then it it pans around and someone has vandalized the school marquee sign. And it says like, William Miller is too young to drive or have sex or something like that. Hmm. To drive or, and then the other word is being taken down. They're pulling out the F word, which is right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, that, you know, it's it's just a little extra bit that shows us he still doesn't fit in at school, but we don't need it. Like, mm-hmm. we can kind of tell there's these little, you know, there's enough in the movie that we don't need that sort of scene. And it, it's really sort of tertiary to the plot, his central arc, um, and doesn't do a lot to add to it. Same thing with the scene with where he first meets Lester Bangs. There's a marvelous cut in the theatrical version where, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, Lester Banks is going like, all right, man, well, I'll see you later. I can't just stand here talking to my mini fans all day. (laughs) And then, you know, they walk and then like it cuts straight from there to they're sitting in the restaurant, you know, chatting more in the director's cut. They walk up the street and they're standing at a stoplight and they're waiting for the stoplight to turn. And they're still just standing there. And there's like a several awkward beats Again, we don't need it. It's better. Well, then Willie Williams says, do you need a ride? And he goes, no, man, I took the bus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a strange line. Yeah, there's there's stuff like that where it's like yeah. the beat is doing something, but it's not doing something that we actually need. It's padding out something that we already have in terms of either the character beat or the moment or whatever it is. And so there's that. 
And and I all of that really bummed me out because I really <laughs> love the rhythm of the way that especially in the first half, it all plays right now. But then there are also deleted scenes. There's so right now in I say right now because it's the version that's always playing in my head. <laughs> the theatrical uh-huh. cut. <laughs> in, Three, in four, version, seven. Exactly. <laughs> in the theatrical cut, um, the scene where they go to the riot house or so the riot Hyatt on the Sunset Strip near the beginning-ish of when William goes on tour with the band, there's that scene where, you know, you you kind of see Russell and Penny getting together for the first time, where they're in a big group of people in the room, and Anna Paquin's going like... like narrating what's yeah, happening. Yeah, narrating kind of, how yeah. they're like making eyes at each other, and they pretend to ignore each other, but then they like go together, and then we see the coat going up against the window of the like ice room, right? Mm -hmm. Where we can tell that they're hooking up in the ice room at the hotel. (laughs) In the director's cut, there's a whole scene of just Russell and Penny talking in the ice room Hmm. before they like hook up. Which is one of the only times that we're out of William's perspective right. until like the at the end of the tour. Right. So yeah, I found that to be a strange choice. It's a yeah. very odd scene. And the dialogue is really hard to play. It's like pretty flowery and draws attention to itself where Russell is kind of trying to rom- romance Penny and tell her how important she is to him in the band and how she makes everything magical and special. And you're just kind of like, well, we we can see she makes everything magical and special. And also William's not in this scene. I don't know why we are. (laughs) So there's stuff like that. And, um, you know, with all respect to Cameron Crowe, I think there's there are really good reasons why that stuff ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, and I'll I'll take over and say I, I agree with the first half of the film, and then the second half I found that there are a lot of things that I really was missing from the theatrical. Basically, what I did is I watched them side by side on a computer, and then whenever I noticed, I mean, I basically watched the 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 bootleg cut, the, the untitled cut, and then whenever I noticed there was a difference, I kind of like checked to see what the difference was. Um, and yeah, the first half, a lot of what you're saying, Trisha, I was just like, okay, there's an extra couple lines in that scene. It's fine or it's funny. It's a little joke, whatever. There's a weird editing thing that happens when Zoe Deschanel leaves. Um, I think this line is only in in the director's cut where uh, Frances McDormand says like, she'll be back. And then you hear her, you hear Zoe Deschanel uh-huh. go like, woo! Mm-hmm. And then Frances McDormand goes, oh, not maybe not soon. But then we cut to the sort of her looking out the window back at back at the house kind of sadly back mm-hmm. at William mm-hmm. and that makes no that edit makes no sense she's like so excited to be leaving but then she's kind of looking back you know and I think the theatrical cut it's just one of those weird little things where you can tell that that the edit was just a little off see that's that's really interesting because I actually love that I love that cut because it, it's it's a little bit of a two plus two where it's like there's both it, it's a mm-hmm. contradiction in her character where she's both right so happy to be free but also sad you know like I think it might be you see her looking back sad and then you hear the woo and then you see her looking back sad again. So it's that sort of weird thing of like she went from this exact pose to screaming with joy to that exact pose again. You know, it's just one of those things that feels a little off. Yeah. Um, But anyway, these are minor things. Um, What I really did love in um, in the second half of the movie was. There were a lot of tone things that just made me feel more immersed in the world. Um, so like there's a scene after the tiny uh, dancer sequence where they're on the road and Jason Lee is giving his interview and then his interview is acting as a voiceover 
for this like montage mm -hmm. of them going around doing stuff, right? It just sort of feels like we get to spend a little more time in this world. Um, and then when William falls asleep in the chair uh, outside of Russell's hotel room and he's like crying yeah. basically, there's a scene afterwards where um, where they wake him up and Russell says, hey, we'll do the interview in Cleveland. And William's like, I don't wanna go to Cleveland, I just wanna go home. And he's like, so just, I'm so over this. And then Russell and Penny is like, come to Cleveland, come to Cleveland, come to Cleveland. And it's just, it's a very sweet moment, but it's like, we don't need it in the sense of like, we already know he wants to go home, but I did like the kind of emotional pull there. And then the scene that really, two scenes that really got me were after, after Penny is sold uh, to Humble Pie or whatever, with Peter Frampton playing his own band's roadie. <laughs> They're having her birthday. Like they're they're yeah, celebrating Penny. They're doing this whole wild. thing. Yeah, they're celebrating her birthday and and giving speeches. Penny Lane's the best and everything like that. And then creepo Jimmy Fallon comes over and he says, <laughs> "I'm sorry, the plane isn't bigger." Mm -hmm. happy birthday or whatever. And that's the moment she realizes she's not going with them anymore. Oh, And then you just get to see Kate Hudson act for like a minute yeah. where she has to go from like realizing to how do I want to handle this right now to, Hey, who wants a slice? You know, like to like, it's kind of, you know, the, the Olivia Coleman in the favorite or Emma Thompson in Love Actually, where it's like, we're just going to watch this person like completely go through a range of emotions without really cutting away from them. And a really sweet moment where Anna Paquin is leaving at the end and mm -hmm. she says to William, like, don't forget me. And then, and then she just, they just have this really nice moment. There's a moment of Jeff and Russell making up after the whole plane, you know, crash sequence. So there's, there's a lot of really beautiful moments in the director's cut. So we've belabored this enough, but I, I just want to say, I think the right cut of this movie is somewhere in between. There's a 40 minute difference between these two cuts. And I feel like the right cut is maybe like two hours and 20 minutes, two hours and 15 minutes, something like that. But, but I think if we're talking about indulgence, it's like return of the King. It's like, I want to watch the extended <laughs> cut. Cause I just want to watch more of this world. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't, I would not argue it's the best cut for like a wider audience. Mm. Well, it's like, that's like my feeling about all the Lord of the Rings movies is like, there's, there's an Alex cut in there that is like the best bits from the extended, but like, I don't right. want all that. So this is yeah, answering a lot of questions for, for me and kind of connecting some dots. Cause I think watching it for me, you know, we, we've talked about how it's like really well edited and really well put together, but I did feel maybe because I wasn't as like entranced by a lot of it. There were things where I was like, I can see that you're like stitching things together and like there's tape holding this together. That wasn't, this wasn't how it was meant to be. And we've called out a couple of these like tiny ones, like the Brian, what you were talking about, the cut to Zoe Deschanel, like maybe not matching like, you know, the performance a little bit um, or the, like the line that she was saying, even that smash cut that you were talking about earlier, uh, Trisha, where like Philip Seymour Hoffman's like, I'm not going to talk to you. Cut to you're in the cafe. That's like 90% works for me. But I was also like, I feel like I'm, it's like a two plus like one, like 0 0.01 <laughs> that I'm missing. It is like something didn't quite add up. So, but those were like little things. And I think as you, as you guys are saying, we don't need those things. We can do the work and like it keeps the story going and it's important. The things you were talking about there, Brian, in the second half were answering questions that were like pulling me out of the narrative because mm. the mechanics of the place to place and character beats kind of gets muddy for me. And so like specifically, you know, at the at the beginning, um, William is like, I want to interview all the band members. He says that, but we don't see him interview anyone. Then he's just like focused on, no, I got to get the, the Russell interview. And so like toward the end, I was like, 
maybe you should be interviewing some of the other people in the meantime. Like, you feel like you're wasting your time like, trying to prioritize this. So hearing that he did interview someone else. He interviews all of them in the director's yeah. cut. We get to see all of his interviews with all the band members in the director's cut. And like, that sounds good. Like, I wanted to see that. Like, the, the Penny not being brought along moment, like, does feel like it kind of gets skipped over. It doesn't have as much of the emotional weight that I wanted. Suddenly, Anna Paquin and the other, you know, roadies, not roadies, whatever they're called. Band-Aids. Band-Aids are, like, missing. And so there is, in the movie, it is kind of accomplishing a, like, you know, the the romantic sheen is like fading like pretty quickly and it's very sobering. So I think it is still effective in the movie, but there were these kind of mechanical like, but I want to understand the logic and like the actual beats of how this is happening because I've been so immersed in it up to this point that I felt like I was like missing out on some of those key moments. I don't know if for me, I care what their bandmates think uh, so much because I'm, I'm so interested in Billy Crudup's character. Like, I mean, he's Billy Crudup is so perfect in that role. He, really he looks the part. He embodies the part like I I'm just drawn to him. And and so it does it does make sense to me that if you had an extra long cut of this movie, you have to find places to cut. It's like, all right, let's just hone in. What is the one goal and the one obstacle the goal is I want the interview with Russell. The obstacle is he's not letting me do it. And there's all these other drama with Penny and everything around this interview. Um, so I, I do. It, I think it makes sense that if you if you want to get your cut down, this is what the movie is at its core. It's this interview and this obstacle and this goal. Yeah, makes sense. I think I think the thing I was bumping up on is that it's then kind of repetitive beats like i feel like it there is. are a few moments where it's yeah. like he's gonna get it oh something happened he didn't right. get it there's other stuff happening and you are getting more characterization and, and watching russell go through this art like when they go to the high school teen party and the i'm the golden god like that was all like <laughs> so so great i love all <laughs> so that great. but it was like functionally kind of hitting the same overall beats um so yeah just an interesting aspect there yeah i think it is difficult with this movie, as with most of Cameron Crowe's films, to kind of nail down the core of either the themes or even the plot, right? Like you guys are talking about, he has a clear goal. He wants to interview with Russell. Russell is a disaster area (laughs) all the time and uh, life on the road is hectic. And so it's really impossible for him to get what he's trying to get. I agree that that's kind of the core of the, I don't know, tension, I guess, or plot twists, (laughs) the the, uh, mechanics of the plot in the second half, uh, in the second act, especially. However, as we're pointing out, what Cameron Crowe's movies tend to do really well is create a sense of drama and intrigue and the world is so immersive and inviting that you want to just kind of live in the texture of it to a great extent. And his characters are a big part of that. And so I think there, there is a lot, um, where there are themes being raised that aren't necessarily related to the central plot, or even if you want to, you could also think about the dramatic question in the movie in terms of the love triangle, right? where we know that William is in love with Penny Lane, basically. And we know that she wants Russell and he wants the interview with Russell. And there's there's kind of this interesting relationship love triangle going on. And what's going to happen in the love triangle is sort of the dramatic question. 
more so than the mechanics of the interview. Right. But but even beyond that, you know, there's this relationship with uh, Jason Lee's character, um, the frontman of the band, and there's this relationship with how popular the band is becoming and what's happening while they're on the road together. And is William going to get found out by Rolling Stone for being 15 years old? Is the story going to happen and come together? There are these other dramatic questions that drive it. And there's a coming of age thing that's happening here in terms of theme as well. So it's not just about like, you know, the romance of music or life on the road or all of these things. There's so much that's being explored in the world. And Cameron Crowe is great at this kind of thing where his movies are revisitable for that reason, because the different characters are grappling with different aspects of the themes that are embedded in the world. So we want to know, is Penny going to realize that Russell doesn't care about her? Will it break her? Mm -hmm. Will it change her? What's going to happen to Penny? Um, Is Russell going to give up something for her? Is he going to change? Is the band going to fall apart or stay together? There are all these other things that are, that keep you watching. And so that the more that you revisit it, you kind of find yourself or find yourself intrigued by different aspects of what's going on. And so I guess it's an editing puzzle, I guess is what I'm coming back to. Like I am obsessed with the theatrical cut and I think it's correct. This movie won. This movie was nominated for four Oscars and the only one and well, the only one it won actually was for screenplay. But one of the ones it was nominated for was editing. Um, And I think the theatrical cut is good. Um, And Cameron Crowe's movies can be too indulgent. I'm just going to say that right now, Elizabeth Town. But (laughs) but it is hard because there isn't a central theme or a central plot. And you can just shave away everything that isn't that. That isn't how his films work. Hmm. Right. And that's why we bought a zoo. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is the reason. You know, you're making me think of this really interesting character web that we have in this movie where there's this sort of like ladder that I was picturing where it's like William is in, in our story world. William's kind of the bottom rung of this ladder of like he wants to be with all the cooler kids. Right. He doesn't fit in. He's this. But like also he gets to tour with this band which like to the average person, that's super cool. Like, so he's sort of a step up from them. Right. And then he is obviously, you know, has feelings for Penny who Penny is, is in with this world, right? Like Penny knows everybody and she's cool and stuff, but Penny's not a permanent fixture. She can be sold and she's not Russell's girlfriend. Russell has a girlfriend, right? So it's like, she is trying to kind of get up to that next level. And then you have Stillwater who is like, they're kind of the top of our immediate character web, but they're still opening for Black Sabbath. They're still trying to get on the cover of Rolling Stone. And then you have Russell, who he thinks he's even better than the band, you know, so he has sort of placed himself at the next rung of the ladder, whether or not anyone else agrees with him. But then, of course, the full circle of this movie is Russell sort of having to apologize to William and, and kind of come full circle with William. Um, and, and it just sort of makes it, it's like, there's a sort of clear ladder, but then it's all really complicated in terms of how it all cuts together. Well, it is interesting that the movie kind of is about the naivety uh, of William Miller, right. Mm -hmm. Or about his uncoolness and how young he is and, 
um, how unprepared he is really to be in the world that he's in. I was reflecting on it this time and I think I paused the movie midway through and I was like, pretty audacious of Cameron Crowe to make a movie about how uncool he was in high school <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, as you're pointing out to us, he seems, you know, super cool. Like the fact that he's 15 years old and he's touring with Stillwater. It seems like it's really cool. Actually writing for Rolling Stone, you know, like mm -hmm. we can tell that he's very talented and very cool, but he is naive, right? We can see that that's the appeal of the central character is his sort of, um, I don't know, his willingness to put himself into these situations that he is absolutely not ready for. And he's so enthusiastic about it because he just cares so much about the music. That's really endearing. I love the scene where he goes after the first concert. Um, well, actually, let me back up. How he gets into the first concert is, right, uh, this really incredible moment where you wonder if he's going to be defeated, right? He's got this door guy that doesn't want to let him in and doesn't want to let him in. And he starts talking to Stillwater and he finally just pulls his random knowledge of who they are and exactly where they are in their career. And he knows everything about their music already. And he's like, Hey, Russell, Jeff, I want to tell you guys this about your band because I think, you know, this thing about, you know, producing it. And I think it's a real step forward for you. And, and then that's kind of how he gets into the world. But then the moment after that concert too, where he's saying goodbye to like everyone he's met backstage and he's like already memorized everybody's names. <laughs> yeah. He's like, Hey man, I'll see you later. Hey, Hey, it was good to see you. Um, that enthusiasm is really catching. And Cameron Crowe is so good at writing characters that are, you know, out of their depth, but excited to be there. And it's so, I don't know. It's such a refreshing protagonist for a film like this. You know, everybody else is kind of jaded and, or they're trying to seem cooler than they are. And he is too, but there's an awareness too about the enthusiasm, the purity of the character that I think is so appealing. The things that I like about this movie are a lot of what you're saying and that this, this character is three dimensional in a really interesting way. And like, and so I think, Again, that's part of why I identified him, you know, like doing video work as a as a young person. If you have a video camera in your hand and you look legit, they'll let you into anywhere uh, is a scary lesson. And so like <laughs> shooting behind the scenes things is like, yeah, no one can walk back past this line. But even though you're like 17, you have a camera and so you can. And so you get so. But I think what I also like about that, though, is that once he's behind that line, once he's inside, he's not changing who he is like i think there's a version of this where william does want to do drugs and like does want to like have like flagrant sex and all like all these things that his mom kind of like warns him about like he is he's naive but he kind of knows that he's naive he's competent he's smart he understands the downsides of this life like he sees he sees that so he's also kind of the adult in the room, despite being the youngest mm -hmm. person. And I think that kind of contradiction and complexity in the character is what really like sucks me in. It's like, I'm not watching this kid like make obvious dumb mistakes over and over again and get sucked into this life. He's like both eagerly, earnestly in love with it, like you're saying, but also has a 
like a little bit of like an objectivity that both lets him appreciate it, but also keeps him from immediately falling into prey for for them. Yeah, I love the scene at the party where he's chasing Russell around and Russell is acting younger than he is, right? Mm. Where he's acting like the responsible adult. He's like, don't give him any more acid. (laughs) (laughs) And trying to be professional and put together in the face of, yeah, just Russell being childish. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's why this movie really like hooked me this time was just it's so nice to see a film where every character feels three-dimensional. There's so much honesty in their portrayal. I mean, the, the Kate Hudson character, Penny Lane, like is so fascinating and so heartbreaking. And just, you know, she she embodies that allure of the kind of like free spirit. I have this like interesting, like almost like ethereal confidence in how I like move through the world. But also I'm actually deeply wounded and, uh, you know, kind of in an unhealthy relationship with this man that's like maybe ruining my life. And I just I just love how we get to see all the different shades of that type of person. You see the cool, untouchable, like perfection that William is falling in love with. And then we see the really like the shattered, you know, side of her that is like underneath all of that. And yeah, I just I love when a movie has a, a character web where every character is give is like given that much complexity and that much dimension. They just all feel real and true. The moment where William's on the phone with his mom and she is, you know, <laughs> someone on the other end, he's talking to Penny Lane and that other girl, and he's she's like, mm-hmm. Purple, your aura is purple. Yeah. <laughs> and his mom's going, I love you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um But that scene ends where Francis McDormand throws the phone down right after William hangs up. There's that sort of wider shot of her sitting in her kitchen and she just throws the phone onto the floor and buries her face in her hands. It's exactly that where she's trying to keep it together. But you can see how upset she is by having driven her children away from her. That's how she feels. I mean, even even the moment where she lets him go on tour is such a there's so so much contradiction in these characters, right? Where she it's like we've set her up to be like you can't even go across the street, basically, and then and then she realizes how much this means to him, and she says no, 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 no longer than two weeks, and you'll have to you know, and he's like what? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 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 exactly what we're all talking about here. Is just every character is three dimensional because there's so much contradiction in in the things that they want and. <laughs> and when they're grown ups and when they're not and all sorts of stuff. And, and you also you feel the allure of all the characters, you know, like even though Russell is horrible in so much of this movie, you also understand his allure and why people are drawn to him and why he is that like gravitational force of the band. And it's just it just I, I love when a movie captures that kind of reality about just, you know, a, a scene like this like you, you can only capture this much three-dimensionality of like this scene by having experienced it because there's so much there's so much there you can't just make up it's just it's just what it is yeah the scene where i mean for my money it's the best scene in it but it's after penny has been sold to humble pie and william is trying to get through to her that, you know, he's like, wake up, don't go to New York. This is going to end badly for you. You're going to get your heart broken. And she calls him sweet, right? And it's William goes on that tirade where he's like, I am not sweet. I am dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, 
it's that exact moment, the contradiction of a character who is so obviously so pure, so sweet, so well-intentioned and in love with the person that's in front of him yelling about how dangerous and mysterious and dark he is and, um, you know, and being a kid, being 15 years old. Um, and it's, there are these beautiful moments like that throughout the movie, but they all come to a head when we can, you know, when, um, the contradiction is at the forefront of the drama and the conflict between the characters. Yeah. I'm curious, actually in that, in the extended cut, is there something in between those moments? Cause it, it feels like that scene like starts a little bit later, like we're missing the head of it or, or something. Well, it's, uh, it's the birthday party scene that Brian was mentioning. Oh, so that's the that tale of that. Into, so in the theatrical version, we cut to, they're walking, you know, Penny is walking away, like uh, they're outside in this beautiful grove mm-hmm. of trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really pretty of, place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and there's trailers and tents and things around and, she's walking away and then William is kind of chasing her and she's kind of processing the news that she isn't going to be on the plane. Um, What happens in the director's cut right before that is again, this contradiction, this Mm -hmm. birthday party scene where everyone in the band is celebrating Penny. They've like sung happy birthday Mm. to her. Russell has like given her a beautiful speech about how important she is to the band and how much they all love her. And then that's when Jimmy Fallon's character says, oh, I'm sorry, the plane isn't bigger. And then it cuts to her walking away from that birthday party scene. So, Mm -hmm. which then, which then, yeah, yeah, it gives different context to that scene because in the theatrical cut, she's just like, yeah, it happens. I get it. And then, but then when we've just watched her have to like process this information live and then we cut to her going out, it happens. I get it. It's like, well, you, we just saw how difficult it was for you to take in this information and process it. And then now we can see your sort of defense mechanism to just brush it off. Although I will say in defense of the theatrical cut, I mean, it sounds like the birthday party scene is great. We do. It almost seems like a double beat because there is a long extended shot of her face outside doing that another like another arc you know because yeah. william confronts her with the truth and we see the tears coming down and a long kind of processing and then the smile and the trying what to say yeah yeah <laughs> um exactly so it's interesting because i i really do feel most of the time that like even if there's good stuff in an extended cut like i almost always prefer the theatrical cut of a movie and and there's something about just like when a movie just barely gives me enough to like get it and then moves on it, it's it's almost more powerful like i i watched um all quiet on the western front that you know the the netflix you know, german iteration uh last night and it was gorgeous absolutely gorgeous beautifully shot movie uh with just great production value but I don't think it needed to be two and a half hours. I think I think the the message that war is meaningless and wrong and sucks. Uh, I didn't need like this many repeated examples of that like done again and again. I would have loved like a tight you know hour forty five minute all quiet in the Western Front that really just like hit me. And instead, it felt like this elongated experience where like the actual the power felt diluted because. I was getting hit with the same beat over and over and over again to the point where it stops being as meaningful. 
So, yeah, I just I, I always find that like movies when they're shorter, there is a point where you cut it down so much that you lose con- really necessary context. Uh, but there's a sweet spot where it's like every beat happens once and and it hits. And that's that's, right. that's what you want. The, the problem is uh, I've heard stories about people who try to make uh, more movies that are under two and a half hours and they get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> Like, can we just have like, can we just have a ninety-minute war movie? Like, because that's probably all you need. No, absolutely not. Ninety-nine percent of the time, I totally agree with you, and I think it's it's just interesting watching this movie this time. Maybe because I had heard that there was an extended cut, and so that was in the back of my mind. But like that cut that we're talking about with the now he's chasing Penny Lane, that felt like, wait, did I fall asleep during a scene? Like mm. it felt like I was missing context mm. and that I was missing the the why behind why everyone was continuing on. Like even you know, you mentioned earlier, Brian, this moment of um you know, you see William, William fall asleep outside the bedroom when, you know, Russell's too busy with, you know, Penny Lane to give the interview, waking them up and him saying, I just want to go home and them talking him into it. Like, I think that's really interesting because, like, I didn't know necessarily that he wanted to go home and, like, tracking what he wants, tracking why Penny Lane keeps kind of throwing herself into it. Like, that birthday scene, I think, to me, would do a lot of work because... Mm. Otherwise, I was like, no, like, you're just dumb at this point. Like, there's yeah, no like, reason why are you in New York? Continue doing yeah. this. <laughs> and I was so like with her. And so this is kind of actually, I think, ties into uh, my lesson. And so maybe we can transition into lessons and sort of finish this out there. After watching it, I wrote down exactly what you had said earlier, Trisha, basically. We're like, this movie, the characters are amazing. The setting is amazing. And the, the intractable situation that those characters are put into the setting is amazing and the plot is fine it's kind of how i felt about it and so i think that's where in the first half you are kind of immersed in these settings with all these characters as you're saying there's all these tracks that you're following there's the love triangle but there's also the band and the interband drama and all these different themes kind of all happening at once and so even if the plot doesn't have like tons of momentum it doesn't matter because there's so much richness everywhere else to like really soak in and so it really made me appreciate how a really well designed set of just characters and setting situation can do so so much drama um and immerse you in, in so strongly and then i think for me because i was less invested in the love triangle for various personal reasons uh that i think the the ending does kind of focus down on that and kind of like zeroes in on being about that primarily and everything else kind of falls into the background and so for me because i was holding on to those other tracks and that was kind of what was like bringing me along seeing those kind of fade away and get cut on the you know cutting room floor in order to prioritize these other things kind of pushed me away a little bit. Um, So just an interesting like positive and negative of that. I love, however, the final kind of beat where uh, Russell, the Billy Crudup character, thinks he's going to visit Penny Lane. She sent him to like, I'm really sad I I didn't finish the movie the first time, obviously, (laughs) because that scene and that moment is just really great and like brings it all home and just, yeah, it was like emotional and, and I feel like kind of ties a bow on a lot of things that was really, really satisfying. 
I also really quick, I love sorry, Tashanel's performance when when you know he's like, Is she here? You know, and, and uh, I forget her character's name, but uh, kind of like Yeah, I yeah. And she kind of does like are, are you here to see me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and and just talking about how that ending puts a bow on everything, it's also just a great example of just getting out exactly at the right time in a movie. We we see Penny Lane get the tickets to Morocco mm -hmm. and she's off and like we don't see anything else about her story she's made her choice and she's doing her thing and I, I love when a movie gets out right at that moment and doesn't overstay its welcome well this kind of ties into my lesson because I love movies that explore the complexity um, and the I don't know I was going to say the prism or I suppose like the rainbow of what of what relationships are and can be. There's sort of this central theme in the film about what is real, right? Mm, mm -hmm. Is life on the road real? Is the friendship between Jeff and Russell at the heart of the band, is that real friendship? Or are is it fake or in the service of something else? Is it transactional? When people occupy spaces outside of very traditional values or traditional value systems. Um, I find that fascinating. And I find the themes that it raises to be fascinating. And so, you know, the way that this movie treats like familial relationships is interesting, right? There's, there's this implication that there's a reality to William's love for his mom and his sister and home life. And that is real. And you kind of see Russell interacting with that in that ending scene where he walks into the house and he sees the childhood portraits of William and Anita and their mother and meets, you know, Francis McDormand's character up close and personal. And we kind of wonder that is Russell capable of encountering something real? And when he goes to the, the party, in the middle of the movie and he's talking to the high schoolers and he's like, real man, I'm only into things that are real now. You, you're This light real. switch is real. Yeah, this light switch is real. And he's like, do you want to see me feed a mouse to my snake? And he's like, yeah, that's real. Um, again, there's this, ten there's this tension of, is there anything real to be found in this sort of alternative story world where, or fringe sort of life that these characters are living where, you know, everyone's just having sex on the road and they're, you know, partying and they're traveling from different places through different places. Is there reality to their relationships at all? Right. And it's William who has to step in and save Penny's life when the reality of that actually breaks her. We're coming up against the transactional nature of the life that she's been living and the sort of, I guess, fakeness, if you will kind of breaks her down. And so I just find that fascinating. And I think if you can speak into lesser explored aspects of human relationship that we don't often see on film, I think that there's something that's always going to be interesting and dramatic about it. And Cameron Crowe is kind of good at that, at getting into some of these like sort of lesser explored aspects of who we are. Yeah. I I think that that juxtaposition, that exploration of what is real or not and meaningful or not is probably the thing that I liked the most and took away from the movie. And I think that's, like I was saying, why I love that final scene where 
Russell comes into his home and like you're saying, sees all these pictures and sees like uh, the meaning that can come from a family and not a rock star life. And like, is this something that he's leaving behind and all that stuff? So like, I like that the movie holds that up really strongly and like, look, this is important. But what I also love is that the movie equally has that midpoint tiny dancer scene that I feel like Mm -hmm. is that moment of clarity and realness of like life on the road. It's lots of fake things, but like everybody on this bus singing singing this song together, like feels like it's, but this is real too. And I like that this movie has those, those beats and like looks at both of those very, very honestly. Uh, Yeah. Because I don't want to be the first person to not say it. This kind of ties into my lesson, um, (laughs) which is, um, which is about the, the sort of feeling of home, you know, and it's kind of what you're talking about with like, with like realness. I weirdly thought about Lord of the Rings a lot while watching this movie, both with the differences in the cuts, but also I always use the Hobbit as the, the Hobbit, the book as the example of like a character who's on this amazing adventure. And it's just constantly like, I would love to be by my fireplace right now. Like I just want a cup of tea. And we get that a lot in the Lord of the Rings, um, both book and, and movies. Um, which is just these characters who are just like, I, I do really value just like the peace and the realness of my home, even though I'm on this crazy adventure. And I think this movie doesn't work. I mean, there's a movie, there's a version of this movie that works fine where William goes on tour and he's just on tour for the, the, you know, majority of the movie. But what really keeps this movie feeling grounded is Elaine, Francis McDormand's character and the sort of checking in and, you know, being like, there is a real life back here. It's kind of everything you were just talking about, Trisha. And then even William's own desire to kind of go back home, you know, which I'm glad, Michael, you you gravitated towards that scene I described where, where he's just kind of basically crying, saying, I just want to go home. Because for me, that really makes it feel like, again, it's the three dimensionality. It's the it's the the contradictions of these characters where it's where it's like, yeah, I do want to be on tour with this band. This is great. But also I was supposed to be done by now. I have a test. I've got to get home. I want to be in my bed at the end of the movie. He sees his bed. He's like, yeah. thank God, you know. <laughs> um, and then also that crossed with the other check ins of the movie, which is uh, with Lester um, and with Ben Fong Torres, where it's like, again, this feeling of here, there is there is something else going on because I feel like this movie would feel so messy and wayward if we were just now we're in Cleveland now we're in Kansas City we're doing this you would still gravitate on the love triangle and some of the character moments and stuff but I love this constant through line of like you have a goal because most road trip movies like we're trying to get somewhere to get something achieved right or we're trying to you know Thelma and Louise are trying to get away from something this is just like we're just on tour but like you've got to get an interview you have to write an article but also you want to come back home but also you love this life but also you love this woman who loves this guy right so there, there's all this kind of stuff happening here um, but I just I just love the constant the constant check-ins with the real world um, and and that the sort of feeling of home that us as an audience helps us feel grounded too. And not like we're just lost in this, this crazy tour world. Yeah. I love that line. Just going back to the theme of, you know, where is reality in the movie or like the, it is in that like sort of crisis scene where William's talking to Penny and he's like, you know, what and where does this real world occur? Right. Um, mm-hmm. And the movie is, I love every moment that it's dealing directly with that theme. Yeah. Yeah, and it does kind of capture that kind of adolescence thing also, right? It feels mm-hmm. 
feeds into all of that in a really yeah. nice way. I'm glad you called out, Brian, also the, yeah, the sort of, not quite a frame story, but the, the check-ins with the Philip Seymour Hoffman character and those other characters, because like you're saying, they do do so much work, and I feel like having the, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character as kind of like a mentor slash mirror character to like compare against and check back in and sort of, you know, we, we talk, he gives advice to William and we get the sense that he's maybe had a taste of this and he's kind of seen it all and where he's landed. And I, it's a, it's a small thing that's, and it's extremely well performed by Philip Seymour Hoffman. But I think as you're pointing out, it does a ton of work to create a context that adds meaning to what we're seeing as we're moving on that tour. Alex, what's your lesson? Yeah, my lesson is just a near-death experience can't be beat for bringing out the truth and all the character yeah. Uh, yeah. conflicts to a head. It's just like, it's so simple and like so obvious, but it just works so well. And it's just, you know, we needed this to happen at this point in the movie, put them in a plane and make them think they're all going to die and let's just get the truth out. And like, in some ways it feels cheap or like convenient, but in other ways it, it does feel totally honest because that is like in in life what are the catalysts for truths coming out often it is like you know all bets are off all hope is lost like might as well just say it and and just get it out um so i really appreciate the movie just like taking advantage of that plane and just giving us a great like all the all the baggage comes out scene because and, and it's also I, I those are always the really fun cathartic scenes in movies and this is a good example of one of those and it has a great ending with the other bandmate saying i'm gay and then, and then the, the plane just like being all fine right after that <laughs> right um so yeah so i think it's just good good to remember that if your movie has an opportunity to put characters into a situation of near death or like almost certain death that's a great place to get out some difficult truths because that's where that's where they they would come out naturally there's a there's a reason brushed with death is part of the hero's journey like right, right. exactly does a lot of work awesome well what else have we been watching uh brian what have you been watching recently uh i've been watching party down uh, which is Again? after 13 oh, the new, years, oh, the new one. Yes, right, okay, okay. which is back for a third season after 13 years off the air. Um, I had seen the original two seasons way back when they came out, and they really struck me as this really interesting tone of like it's funny and it's goofy, and sometimes things are going to be like really over the top jokey and like farcical including an episode which is like specifically being a farce on purpose but then like it's gonna get dark and it's gonna get real and it's gonna get honest and you're, you're just gonna be like oh these characters are dealing with like divorce or these characters are dealing with just like existential question of why am i doing anything here i'm just like and 13 years later i still feel like i can't think of another show that has really hit those beats in such a in such a way where I like both of them so much. Um, and I'm happy to report that halfway through the new season, it feels like the same show, uh, and like tonally and camera move wise and all this kind of stuff. I'm just like, yep, it feels like the same show, but 13 years later. And, you know, these characters who were struggling actors in their 20s are still struggling now and they're in their 40s, you know, and it's just like, so of course for that, like, what does that mean for for them 
like when they've tried to move on with their lives, but they still have these dreams and it's awesome cast, Adam Scott, Lizzie Kaplan, Jane Lynch, Ken Marino. And then like every episode just has like cameos where you're like, holy crap, like how did you get all of these people on your show? Um, so yeah, I really recommend the first two seasons and, uh, and then the third season seems to be more of the same in a way that I'm, I'm really enjoying so far. Nice. That's yeah. I'm happy to hear that. I watched it a long time ago and like weirdly liked it. Like it feels like a thing I shouldn't like for some reason, Mm -hmm. but I like really got into it. And so I was curious when I saw there's a new one coming out. Very cool. Uh, Trisha, what have you been watching? So I got a film I had been meaning to see from 1981. I saw the 1981 version of the postman always rings twice. This particular adaptation of the James M. Cain novel was written by David Mamet um, and then and directed by Bob Raffleson. And it's really interesting. So I was pretty familiar. It's, you know, film noir, essentially. Uh, the James M. Cain novel came out in 1934. I didn't realize it has been adapted into movies seven times, um, mostly foreign films and other like stage adaptations and operas. Uh, There was a 1946 version with Lana Turner that I'm pretty familiar with. And that's kind of like the classic film noir, like black and white American uh, adaptation of the story. It's a tale of love and revenge and forbidden passion and adultery and death. Um, And it's great anyway. uh, But I hadn't seen the Jack Nicholson version. So I do recommend it. It's um, really interesting. Angelica Houston is in it for like one second um but she's awesome she's yeah uh wonderful in it but yeah i'd been meaning to check it out and um a few years ago when they remade a star is born with bradley cooper and in lady gaga i went down that rabbit hole and watched every adaptation of that where there have been five remakes of that movie and so i feel like i might have to start going down a postman always rings twice This is the most Trisha thing Situation. ever. Yeah. Well, and I actually the math of how many novel. times the postman is going to ring is <laughs> incalculable. And I haven't actually read the James N. Cain novel, so I definitely want to get my hands on the novel also and read it. Um, but yeah, I just I'm fascinated by stories that have the kind of uh, draw or just sort of center of gravity that this. I don't know. I think talking about uh, Banshees of Inisherin uh, kind of inspired me. It's like. When things are, when the text of something is so fascinating and so interpretable by different people, I get really fascinated in that story. Like, what are sort of the modern classics or like sort of our modern myths that, you know, interact with? Because there is this sort of like fable-ish supernatural thing. Like the title is actually a reference to like karma or fate. Like you can't get away from something. And this particular film noir is very much in that space. And so um, strongly recommend that version, as well as the 46 version with Lana Turner, which I also really like. Nice. Godspeed on your journey. Thanks. I'll check back in with you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Alex, what have you been watching? Um, So I watched The Elephant Whispers, which won uh, the... Academy Award for Best Short Form Documentary. Um, it's on Netflix. It's forty minutes long, and it's just it's just beautiful. It's just it's about like uh, the, these Indians taking care of elephants in like an elephant uh, like orphanage 
orphanage basically in India. And like I watched it on a plane on my iPad and like my, my my eyes were like welling with tears like for 40 minutes straight because it's just so sweet. <laughs> like it's just like the sweetest because the, the, like it's like these these two um, kind of indigenous Indian like man and woman who like are like in charge of like certain like young elephants that are like basically like their babies, like their children. And it just it just anytime you see like really in depth, like just how profound animal you know interspecies relationships can be it's just like the sweetest most beautiful thing so if you want 40 minutes of just like wonderful life-affirming like sad and beautiful sweetness uh watch the elephant whispers on netflix i also caught the margaret mitchell doc um that's another short form doc that was nominated for an oscar uh, and it's on Netflix, and it's also very good and really interesting. It's not a sweet in the way that you're talking about. It's about <laughs> yeah. and Watergate, but uh, yeah. And also, shout out to Doug Blush, who was an executive producer and editor on Elfin Whisperers, who also was my mentor when I first got into editing in LA. Yeah. And if you want two hours of Indians caring for um, animals, watch All That Breathes, which is on HBO Max. And yes, I also did not win that. during the Elephant Whisperer speech. We're like, see, it just goes to show how much, you know, the um, synergy between man and animal. And I was like, I bet the All That Breathes guys are like, yeah, that's why we made our movie, you jerks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Martha Mitchell. I said Margaret Mitchell. That's the novelist. Martha Mitchell mm. <laughs> was uh, the politician's wife and her, uh, the way that she spoke out against Watergate. Nice. Cool. Uh, so I, a little bit ago, but recently watched uh, Wednesday, the Netflix show, mm. The Addams Family. Uh, not quite remake, but just kind of, you know, taking the premise of The Addams Family focused on Wednesday. I was very unsure about it. I loved the, the movies and the show a little bit as a kid and like, you know, had a huge crush on Christina Ricci and all that stuff. Uh, so it was, I started this, I heard it was good. I was a little tenuous, uh, but got sucked in pretty quickly. It wasn't at all what I expected. It's it's kind of like, so it's like Adam's Family meets Hogwarts Harry Potter meets like a Sherlock detective story. Uh, and it's really fun. And I got super sucked in and binged it within like a couple of days, which hasn't happened with the show in a really long time. Like I watched it on a plane because I was like, no, I just have to keep watching it. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. It's fun. It has some cool style and some fun performances from some new young people. Other parts where I was like, the sum of its parts is better than like the whole is there are parts that aren't great, but parts of it are really great. And overall, it was a really, really fun. Uh, and I'm like sucked in and want to see the rest of it. So if you just want like a fun, bingeable, but like engaging intellectually puzzled detective story set in a world of magic Wednesday. Highly recommend. <laughs> most people agree with you. It's the like second most streamed show after Stranger Things it's, on Netflix now. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, yeah. Like, Christina Ricci's in it also. So like when she showed mm. up, I was like, oh, that was oh, OK. That's fun. That helped. OK, well, so this has been our conversation about Almost Famous. Uh, fun, fun to revisit. I enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I extracting things and now i want to go watch the extended cut actually and and do my own kind of alex cut of the movie because i think that exists somewhere out there for our next episode to continue with the philip seymour hoffman train of amazingness we will be talking about magnolia the paul thomas anderson film from 99 yeah. right that was all, all part of the crazy 99 
it is a wild ride of a movie. Uh, and so I'm, if you if you're listening and you haven't seen it yet, uh, like especially <laughs> patrons over on the Discord, like I'd love to hear people's thoughts on what you make of this movie if this is your first time watching it in 2023, because uh, I think that'll be a fun input to have as part of the conversation. Uh, Tell us what you think it is before you watch it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Think it is, and then what it was, and yeah. So that'll be fun. So uh, next episode, Magnolia. This has been our conversation about Almost Famous. If you want to help us make more episodes and get access to our patron exclusives like Spotlight or Austin Powers, the International Man of Mystery, head over to the Beyond Screenplay Patreon. All those episodes are waiting for you there. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we'll see you in the next episode for Magnolia. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.